Please open with, with me in your Bibles today to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, and also Daniel chapter 9. If you want to go there and hold your place, we'll be looking and starting in Matthew 24, but we will go to Matthew, or excuse me, Daniel chapter 9 later in our study. Continuing our study, this series that we're in entitled Things to Come, today we'll be looking specifically at uh, some things Jesus has to say about an event called the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. Sounds pretty serious, and in fact it is, and we'll look into the details as we get into our study. But let me just kind of introduce and review where we are, and uh, so we can kind of pick up Again, in Matthew 24, Jesus is there in Jerusalem. He's ministering daily in the temple area. This is the final week before the cross. Each day he retreats out uh, to the Mount of Olives and goes on into Bethany and then comes back each day. So this is during that Passion Week of Christ. And Jesus, you'll remember, they're there in Matthew 24. We looked at this last week, but just to refresh us, in verse 2, Jesus made this incredible prediction. He said, do you not see all these things, talking about the temple and all of its magnificence? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. An incredible prediction in the, in the presence of this glorious temple and all the surrounding buildings, buildings. Jesus says it's coming down and it's coming down to the ground. We know that it would be just 40 years later that, in fact, this prophecy would be literally fulfilled. The Romans came and leveled the city, brought the temple down to the ground in 70 AD, putting down a Jewish revolt at the time, and Jesus' words came to pass. Well, as you imagine, after the disciples heard this prophecy, they had questions they wanted to know, Jesus, when is this going to happen? Is this going to mark the, the end of the age? Is this when you're going to bring in the new millennial kingdom where the Messiah is going to rule and reign in the earth? And that's what they said there in verse 3. It says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, as we mentioned last week, in their mind, these things were probably all simultaneous, that whenever the temple would be destroyed, surely Jesus would be ushering in the new age of the kingdom, the Messiah kingdom that they had read about and knew was prophesied. And they wanted to know, Jesus, are we close to this? What are going to be the signs? When's this going to happen? Jesus will give answer. The answer, of course, is is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse because he gives this long answer there on the Mount of Olives. And a few things that we introduced last week and I want to further develop in your, your thoughts today. As we look at Jesus' answer, uh, I believe that there is information for the immediate future that Jesus predicted of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., I believe there is also some information regarding just the general flow of history between Jesus' first and second coming, things that we can see playing out even in our day. But I think most specifically, Jesus is going to be talking about 
a, something that will be fulfilled at the very end of the age, just preceding his second coming, a time known as the tribulation. Jesus himself will refer to it in this discourse as the great tribulation. And this is sometimes the nature of prophecy. And again, I introduced this thinking, but I want to expand on it a little bit here today. Sometimes prophecy, although written by, or in this case, stated by Jesus, it seems as though these events are all happening simultaneously at one time, when in fact, sometimes prophecies are, uh, they're fulfilled initially, but then there's this long gap of time before the second half of a prophecy is fulfilled. I gave you a quick example last week. Let me remind you of it, and I'll have it for you on the overhead just to kind of highlight the, the differences of the timing in which sometimes prophecies are fulfilled. Peter, after the Holy Spirit came upon the church there in Acts chapter 2, they, they were wondering, what's all this? What's going on? All this, all this Holy Spirit activity. Peter stood up and he said, this is what's happening, guys. The prophet Joel, his prophecy is being fulfilled in our midst. And he quoted the prophet Joel. Let me remind you, Acts 2 and verse 16, Peter speaking, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see vision, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. That was happening right there as Peter spoke. The spirit had come, they were beginning to prophesy, glorify God, and that continues through the church age. We are continuing to, to, to reap the benefit of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. He is in, alive in our hearts and lives as well. But Peter continues to quote the balance of that prophecy from Joel. And he says in verse 19, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor and smoke of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now I put this for you on the overhead and I kind of showed you just broke it into two colors. The green there, that's fulfilled and continuing to be fulfilled in our day. But the balance of Joel's prophecy we're still waiting for some of those things to come to pass, right? We haven't seen the sun turned into darkness and the moon into blood. We believe that's a description of what's going to take place immediately preceding Christ's return, his second coming. But we see in this prophecy, although it's written seamless as though it all happens at once, we see this large gap of time between the beginning fulfillment and the end fulfillment, right? Nearly 2,000 years already in which we're waiting to see the balance of Joel's prophecy concerning the last days come to fruition. So sometimes we see in prophecies gaps of time that separate fulfillment. The other thing that is sometimes common in prophecy is something we call a dual fulfillment. In other words, it's fulfilled in some respects almost immediately in history, but then it has a more fuller 
fulfillment later in history. The same prophecy being fulfilled in a foreshadowing way and then in the full measure, more complete way later. This is what we believe is taking place with Matthew chapter 24. Some of the things that Jesus describes here, we can look back in history and say, you know what, that is a pretty accurate description of what happened in 70 AD when Rome laid siege to Jerusalem, surrounded and then ultimately destroyed the temple and leveled it to the ground. Some of the things Jesus describes seem to be fulfilled there in 70 AD. But not all of what he describes did in fact happen in 70 AD. We think that there is more yet to come. So in a sense, a foreshadowing took place in 70 AD. And in another sense, we see some of these things even describing the age in which we live, the wars and rumors of wars, the, the natural earthquakes and things. And we see maybe an acceleration of those things. We too witness those signs. But ultimately, we believe that Jesus is speaking about a very specific time at the very end of the age, a time of tribulation, a seven-year period, wherein these things will be coming in much more prominence and intensity. That will be the ultimate fulfillment of what Jesus speaks of. And although some Bible teachers and respected scholars they try to fit everything back into 70 AD. They would like to look at Matthew 24 as being completely fulfilled. We believe, and many Bible teachers that I study and agree with, that that's just not an adequate interpretation of these passages. Just a couple of things there. You're in Matthew 24. Look at verse 15, and we'll be looking at this in more detail. But it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Although the temple was destroyed, it was not, this abomination of desolation did not take place in 70 AD as described by Daniel the prophet. It's not a good fulfillment of that prophecy. We think that's yet future. Uh, we also see, look at verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Well, we certainly don't feel like that's been fulfilled in 70 AD. There's no historical record of that kind of thing going on in the earth or in the stars. Verse 30, then the, son of, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The actual visible return of Christ. That certainly did not happen in 70 AD. We see that as yet future. So I believe the best way to read through this passage in Matthew is to glean some of it as being a foreshadow fulfillment in AD 70, some of it speaking to what we can notice even in the flow of history during our age, but most prominently we will see these things, and I believe Jesus is speaking to that time of tribulation, those that will be on the earth during those, that seven-year period, which will be a period like no other in history. Remember what we looked at last week, just verses 1 through 8? Jesus began to give the signs in answer to the disciples' question. 
there would be spiritual deception. There would be wars and rumors of wars, global conflict. There would be natural disasters. And Jesus described these things as the beginning of sorrows, birth pangs, growing more prevalent and intense in time, and certainly most prominent in the time of the tribulation. With that in mind and that introduction behind, let's take a look now going forward. Start with me, verse 9, back in Matthew 24, Jesus continues to talk about signs of the times. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Jesus speaks of persecution. He speaks of false prophets and deceptions. He speaks of lawlessness and a growing cold of men's hearts and their natural love. He speaks of the gospel continuing to be preached and ultimately preached to all nations. Well, again, we can say that the disciples saw some of all of this. They certainly were persecuted. Some of them went on to be martyred for their faith. They also, you know, we, we see some of these things today. We see persecutions still today. We see most recently in the Middle East, a kind of a, a rise in violence in persecution against Christians. We're seeing and hearing of things that are, you know, almost hard to imagine. Beheadings, crucifixions, persecutions that seem to be on the rise are these signs. I believe these are pointing towards an end and a coming a coming, returning Christ. I think we see even in our own culture a certain anti-Christian sentiment kind of rising against us, against those who believe and, and embrace faith. And again, this is consistent with what the Apostle Paul taught in the New Testament. A couple of references for you. 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. And Paul gives a little more uh, kind of color to these perilous times. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Paul said, look, as the, as the days draw nearer, they become more perilous. But we believe all these things will find a culmination, a, a full measure in the tribulation, especially when the Antichrist comes on the scene. You talk about a false prophet, a, dece a deceiver. Look with me, with, and I'll have it for you on the overhead. Consider what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, 
with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul talks about a day when this son of perdition, this, this, uh, un, this, one who, this lawless one, is going to have kind of lying wonders, and God is going to allow and send a strong delusion. It will be something of a judgment against those who refused to believe the truth. You see, there is a response from God to the heart that rejects truth, that re refuses truth, that doesn't want the truth. God then allows that heart to be deceived and led astray, a delusion. And I think that, you know, we see that even in our own time and in our own culture. I see some of the laws that even our own nation is moving towards, and they seem so crazy to me. It's like, who thought that was a good idea? I don't want to go into great detail, but the, the whole bathroom law. Are you familiar with the bathroom law? That, you know, that men who want to be women should be able to use the women's bathroom? Boy, man, how's, how about that, guys? Uh, just, hey, that's not so bad. But, but then women who want to become men, they can use the men's bathroom. And if we don't allow that, we're discriminating against them. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to get into some politic policy here, but just, that just seems crazy to me. But this is the kind of thing, when, when people close and resist and refuse truth, it seems that God gives them over to a debased mind, to, to futile thinking. They become darkened in their understanding. And this is just an example, I think, of, of what Paul is talking about, but that in the, in the tribulation, when the Antichrist is there and performing signs and wonders, that all the world is going to follow after this one, and there's going to be a great delusion and a deception. I think that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, when he says false prophets and great deception. But he says something there for us in verse 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, I think these words are going to have very meaningful impact in the hearts of those that are here living through the tribulation. Now, I believe that the church, and we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, I believe that the church, the bride of Christ, will be removed from the earth before the great tribulation, before the time of pouring out of God's wrath upon the earth. So I don't believe that as believers, we will be here for that time. But those that are here and those that are left behind, those that remain, many will be coming to faith in Christ. The Bible says that the gospel is going to be proclaimed all throughout the earth. The book of Revelation talks about an angel going and proclaiming through the whole earth the gospel of Christ. People are still going to have opportunity to receive and come to faith. And we know that many will during that tribulation. And listen, when they see these terrors coming upon the earth, both the natural disasters and the wars and the persecution, they're going to find comfort in verse 13, hang in there. 
God's got salvation for you. This won't last forever, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. We'll see later in this chapter, Jesus says, these days are shortened by God, lest all flesh fail. God has a limit to how long this season will last. And there is an encouragement to know that it has an end. And it encourages me, if you're living in that time, to endure and hang in there. But I think there's a word of encouragement for all of us, for all seasons, for all generations. And that is, don't give up. Stay the course in your Christian journey. Now, I don't want to be here during that tribulation. I hope none of you will be here during that tribulation. But even in this life, what do we have? Tribulation. <laughs> now, it won't be like the great tribulation, thank the Lord. But we still have trial. We still have difficulties. And we, we're called by God to endure, not to give up. And that's my kind of application for you here a little bit as we're working our way through. Don't give up. The Christian life requires endurance. It requires perseverance, staying faithful till the end. You will be persecuted. You might be hated, even betrayed by family, friends, society. God calls us to be faithful to him. Consider just a few of these verses, and I'll have them for you on the overhead just quickly. Hebrews 10.35, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Don't give up your confidence. Don't get discouraged. Hang in there. There's great reward for enduring with the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run, how? With endurance, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So this exhortation to not quit, to hang in there, to stay the course, that comes to all believers for all seasons. I remember Pastor Chuck, before he passed away, they, they did some interviews with Chuck, asking him to kind of speak to the younger generation and some of the younger pastors that were coming up in ministry. And uh, the question was asked, you know, Chuck, if you were just kind of summarize or boil it all into maybe one or two statements, what would you say to the young pastors just coming up into ministry, launching out on their their walk with the Lord, what would you say to them? And this was his word, three words. Stay the course. Stay the course. There's always opportunity to get discouraged and quit and to, to stop halfway or to, you know, give up or pursue something else. But the word of God encourages us to stay the course. Don't grow weary in well-doing. For, God, for in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Back to Matthew 24, let's press on. Now we're going to see Jesus get very specific. He's going to talk about a specific event that you should be looking for if you're here during the tribulation. And I hope all of you will not be here, but if you happen to be here, this is what you want to watch for. Verse 15. 
Then when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. This is a great tribulation, but God puts a limit on the time that this tribulation lasts. But he gives a very specific sign to look for at the end of the age. He's been speaking about general things, wars, rumors of wars, persecutions. But now, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, if you're in Judea, if you're here in the tribulation, that marks a time to get out of town because great persecution is getting ready to come upon you. What is this abomination of desolation? Well, just interpreted, it, it means simply the ultimate desecration of the Jewish temple. An idolatrous image bringing an extreme offense, an abomination set up in the holy place or the temple of God. And it's play, when, it's, when, it, when Jesus says, when you see it there standing in the holy place, uh, it's, a t it's, it's an abomination that will bring great destruction and judgment, desolation. It's an abomination that brings desolation. And Jesus says, it's spoken of by Daniel the prophet, whoever reads, let him understand. So it's in Daniel that we can find more details about what Jesus references here in Matthew 24. And we know that Daniel speaks of this abomination of desolation, at least in three places, Daniel chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12. We're going to focus today on Daniel chapter 9. But let me say that this type of thing has happened before in Israel's history. The, the temple has been desecrated in years, in years of Israel's history, even before Christ. Some of you may have heard the, the, uh, of the man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the Syrian king who ruled in Palestine approximately 175 to 165 BC. He was there as a surrogate of the Greek Empire. So the Greeks were the world power. And this Antiochus Epiphanes, although he was a Syrian king, Greece kind of placed him as the ruler over Palestine. And he actually did desecrate the Jewish temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. You can imagine how that went over with the Jewish population. And he set up an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. 
He was so antagonistic toward the Jews. When he did this, it it incensed the Jews so strongly that they actually rose up in revolt. In their history, it's known as the Maccabean Revolt. And they actually drove those offenders out of Jerusalem. They rededicated the temple. And that's still celebrated in Jewish culture today. It's known as Hanukkah. And that was the event that kind of preceded that. But Jesus clearly is not talking about something that happened before. He says, when you see, he's talking about something that's going to happen again. And so again, here we see, okay, something that seemed to be a prefiguring or a foreshadowing of what will be even more pronounced at the time of tribulation. The Antichrist and what he will do will be an even greater fulfillment of what was pre-shadowed in Israel's history before. You're there with me, I hope now, in Daniel chapter 9. And I'm asking you to bear with me today. I have a lot of kind of detail to cover, but it's important if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying to us in Matthew 24. Daniel was a man who lived in captivity after Babylon conquered Jerusalem, he took, Nebuchadnezzar took captives. Daniel was a, just a teenage young man taken captive into Babylon, living there in refuge. But he grew on up to live through several other world powers. But he was a man who had a heart for God. And he often would pray and ask the Lord for what God had planned for the nation, his people of Israel. And in fact, Daniel 9, Daniel has been looking through the prophecies of Jeremiah. He knows that their captivity was predicted to be 70 years by the prophet Jeremiah. So he knows now, Daniel's been there for a long time. He knows the time is coming when God is going to get ready to restore and send back a remnant to the homeland. And so he begins to pray, God, what's coming? And he, and he prays a prayer of confession. Lord, forgive me. Forgive our people. You're just and you're right for us to be in this place. But I know in your mercy you've planned a future and a hope for your people. And I'm asking you now to show me uh, what do you have coming. It's in answer to that prayer that God sends the angel Gabriel to give Daniel this insight. Pick it up with me now. Daniel chapter 9. I'll start in verse 20. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So Gabriel, clearly an angel, he flew to meet Daniel, but he appeared as a man. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Gabriel is now going to give Daniel a prophetic timeline of what God has planned for his, Daniel's people, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Pick it up with me. We're going to take it one verse at a time 
And try to track with me. I'll do my best to make it clear. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. That would be the Jewish people, Daniel. And for your holy city, that would be Jerusalem. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy. Seventy weeks, or in the Hebrew, it's literally 70 sevens, 70 blocks of seven, and we can interpret this to be 70 sevens of years, or 490 years, Daniel, have been, have been given to do and accomplish all these things, to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in an everlasting righteousness. He's talking about a whole new kingdom. He's talking about sealing up vision and prophecy to fulfill all the prophecies concerning you and your nation. All of this, 70 weeks have been appointed. 490 years have been given to accomplish these things. Let's read on. Verse 25, he now will give some detail. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, Jesus, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Gabriel gets into some very specific detail. Okay, he gives him the big picture. We have 490 years that have been set for your people, Daniel. Here's when you start the clock. At the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That starts the clock. That's when the 490 years begin. Now, there were a, a number of commands that were given for, to the Jewish people living in exile to go back and rebuild their temple. But Gabriel says, no, you're looking for the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Not the temple, but the city. That command we find in Nehemiah chapter 2. Don't turn there, but you can reference that later. It was given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah 445 BC. That starts the clock. And Gabriel says to Daniel, from that time, you have a certain amount of weeks until Messiah, the prince, until Jesus arrives. And he breaks it up. He says seven weeks. That would be seven times seven, 49 years. And that is the time of the rebuilding project, rebuilding the city. The first 49 years are the time that you'll be rebuilding the city and it will be rebuilt in troublesome times. And if you read the book of Nehemiah, you know that it was rebuilt in troublesome times. They held a trowel in one hand to build the wall and a spear in the other to defend themselves. They were, they were, it was greatly contested, the rebuilding of the city. But Nehemiah, this happened, and that would be the first seven weeks. But then another period, 62 weeks, would remain until the Messiah, the Prince, would appear. And that 62 weeks would be another 439 years. If you take 62 weeks and 7 weeks of years, you come up with a total of 
69 weeks, right? 483 years. Well, Gabriel told Daniel that there were 70 weeks. He gives him what is going to take place for the first 69. And then he describes what takes place. And we'll see that here in in just a minute as we look at the next verse. But let me tell you that a Sir Robert Anderson has done some great detailed work in calculating these dates. He has a book entitled The Coming Prince. And he's able, he, he used the calendar that Daniel would have used. And in that day, a year was 360 days, not 365. He's taken that 360 days per year, done the calculation, come up with 173,880 days. And he can verify the date that the command was given to the very day that Jesus presented himself as Messiah coming in and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem to the day. How many days was it? It was 173,880 days between the time that the command went forth and Jesus entered Jerusalem. You talk about detailed fulfillment. And you remember Jesus out of Luke chapter 19. This is why he was able to say this in verse 41, as he came into the city, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem saying, if only you knew that this was the day but they're hidden. You've hardened your heart and you're missing what God intended to be your opportunity for peace, the Messiah. Read on in Daniel chapter nine. What's going to happen then after these 69 weeks? Does he give us any information? Verse 26, after the 62 weeks, so you have the seven, the 62, total of 69, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. So after this first block of time, the 69 weeks, Messiah is going to be cut off. Jesus was crucified, but not for himself. He died for the sins of the world. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It was in 70 AD that the Romans destroyed both the city and the sanctuary. All of this predicted by Daniel the prophet hundreds of years before Christ. To the very day, to the very detail. But he says the people of the prince who is to come. Well, we know the people were the Romans. They're the ones that destroyed and fulfilled the prophecy. But apparently there is a prince who is to come. He will come from that people. This is why we, we believe that the Antichrist will have some roots in the Roman Empire, whether it be the Western Rome, Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a large piece of the world, but the prince will come from that people. The prince who is to come. Who is he? Who is this prince who is yet to come? Let's take a look. Verse 27. 
Then he, who? The prince who is to come, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Ah, there's that missing week. We were wondering what happened to that last week, right? Here it is. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. That's starting to sound like Jesus, isn't it? Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. This is the abomination of desolation we believe Jesus is referring us to when he says, consider the book of Daniel. This prince who is to come, there is one seven-year week remaining wherein God is going to fulfill his dealings with Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And this prince who is to come is going to apparently make a covenant with the many for a week. But in the middle of the week, he's going to break that covenant and he's going to go in and he's going to make this abomination in the temple. Now I have a chart for you. It's a little bit elementary, but it at least gives you a visual. Okay, just walk with me. Left to right timeline. The decree is given. The first seven weeks are the rebuilding. First 49 years. The next 62 weeks go by and Messiah, Jesus comes, presents himself in Jerusalem, is crucified, but not for himself, for the sins of the world. 483 years to the day. A break, an insert of time. We've seen that already in prophecy. That there can be great intervals of time between the final fulfillment of the full prophecy. We believe that's where we are today. We're somewhere between the the 69th week and the 70th week. We call that the church age. Paul the apostle said that the church age was a mystery. You read about this in Ephesians. God has has given me insight into this mystery known as the age of the church. You see, in the Old Testament, they didn't see this Gentile Jewish believer group called the church, the bride of Christ. This is a New Testament insertion. God had it in mind all along, but he kept it in mystery until revealed through the New Testament apostles. We're now living in that gap of time, awaiting for the final week, to begin, and that final week in the middle of that seven years will come that abomination of desolation. We believe that the church age will come to a close, namely by the rapture, God will come and collect his church, Jesus will take his bride out of the earth, and then that will mark the beginning of the tribulation. You don't want to be left behind for the tribulation. But if you end up being here for the tribulation, keep your eye on Israel, keep your eye on Jerusalem, keep your eye on the prince who is to come that makes covenant for seven years and then breaks covenant in the middle of that seven-year period. Paul describes this coming um, abomination of desolation. So it's not just Daniel, it's not just Jesus, it's supported through the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 And verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, 
we think that's the prince who is to come from Daniel 9, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God where? In the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. We believe that has yet a future fulfillment. Paul wrote this. It was never fulfilled in his day. It was never fulfilled before the temple was destroyed. 70 AD did not adequately fulfill this. We believe this is coming in that final week. The book of Revelation speaks of the beast. Again, just a quick reference. Revelation 13.5, concerning this beast, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. How long is that? Three and a half years. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle. Where was, what's his tabernacle? The temple. And those who dwell in heaven. This beast, he will have a great skill in deceiving. He'll speak a great many things. And even, we believe, will be the one who maybe brings peace to the Middle East. And part of that peace settlement will be for the Jews being given opportunity to rebuild their temple up there on the Holy Temple Mount, which has this huge spanse of area just waiting to receive a temple. They could build that temple in no time, given the permission. But the political climate won't allow it. But the, the, great, the one who speaks many great things, he will find a way to navigate it. And believe me, they could even put up the tabernacle as Moses did in the wilderness. They could have that tent up in a matter of days and start a sacrificial, start a Jewish worship area again up on that holy land of the Temple Mount. These things we see as yet future. And Jesus says, when you see that, when you see that abomination of desolation take place, you need to get out of town. You won't even have time to go down and pack your bags. I think he's speaking specifically to the Jews that will be there in Jerusalem, that will have embraced this wonderful peace treaty. But when they see the true colors of this, this man who's spoken great things, their eyes will be opened. They're going to read the words of Jesus and they're going to say, this is what we were warned about. Let's get out of town. There's more in the book of Revelation talking about that fleeing, where they go. And we have some thoughts about that, but not today. You're getting just kind of the, the high level view of the timeline and why we, why we feel the tribulation is a seven-year period. Why we believe that in the middle of that tribulation, Jesus said it's going to be a, a great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Not only the persecution and the oppression of the Antichrist, but if you read the book of Revelation, you also see the bowls and the trumpet. You see the judgments of God coming upon the earth. God beginning to deal with a Christ-rejecting, God-hating world. But even in that time, God is going to be saving. God is going to be offering the gospel. Jesus, I believe, is offering hope and words to those that will be on the earth during that time. The heart of God, even in the outpouring of wrath, he still wants to save a remnant, those 
who will turn to faith in him. He's still looking and is mighty to save. We believe this is something written primarily for the nation of Israel during this time. We think the church will be primarily gone, raptured with Christ, but then there will be those coming to faith and including many Jews coming to salvation. You'll notice that even in his warnings, uh, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. These have specific Jewish instructions, specifically about Jerusalem, that you would have opportunity to flee and escape some of what's coming. It doesn't seem to be instruction for the church. Some final observations here. Thank you for bearing with me. We've covered a lot. And let me just make some closing thoughts. I hope that this gives you a little understanding, appreciation for why Israel as a nation is an important player in end time prophetic uh, theology. Because for this abomination of desolation to take place, there has to be a temple for this Antichrist to desecrate. And in order for there to be a temple, there has to be an Israel, there has to be a Jewish population living there in Jerusalem, in the land, that would be interested in having a place of worship. The fact that Israel is back on the map, back on the scene in the world, in, in, in the nations, is, we believe, very significant. It seems as though the stage is being set for some of these things to begin to be fulfilled, literally. So, Israel is a significant timepiece for God. The temple mount, the, 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 the idea of a temple, we know that there is a temple institute. They've already, they've already got all the instruments ready. They've got, already got the priests prepared. They're ready to go. There are, there are religious Jews in Israel today that are ready to go with the temple. We think that's prophetic. We think that's in time with what, God, uh, what Jesus said would come. We also believe that we need to be living with a perspective of eternity. Now, don't think to yourself, well, okay, they've got to build a temple first. So I don't have to really get serious about God until they break ground on the temple. Well, that would be foolish. <laughs> like I said, all they've got to do is put up a tent and they can get going. But here's the thing. We believe that the church is going to be rescued, raptured, take caught up away from this tribulation by the Lord. And that could come at any moment. You may see, oh, they're breaking ground on the temple, but the church is gone. I'm here for the duration. Well, if you end up that way, you'll know where to, to read. Go to Matthew 24, get your playbook right there. But don't wait to be you know, caught unaware. Because the rapture doesn't, there are no prophetic things that need to take place for the rapture. Jesus could come tonight. He could come this afternoon. And when that happens, when that, you know, then immediately the, the, the last week will begin to advance. And you don't want to be here during that time. You want to be with him as the bride of Christ. Just a few closing passages for you in Peter. Peter encouraged believers to live ready and to live with an understanding of the time that they were living in. And again, just quick references and I'll close in prayer. Thank you for your patience. Uh, 2 Peter 3.11, 
Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Peter said, look, you know what's coming. How should you be living? 2 Peter 3, 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. The reason God's delaying the program is so that others can be saved. But you be diligent. Second Peter three seventeen. you therefore beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. It is packed with information and some of which we need to study the scriptures to discern. I'm thankful, Lord, for the prophecies that you have given to us that we might not be caught unaware. Lord, we do not have these things to to, to where we can predict dates and times, but we do have a general sense of you moving and advancing the prophetic clock forward. And how we want to respond as Peter encouraged us to be ready to live with a certain diligence, Lord. Uh, Not to be led away with the error of the wicked. Oh, how enticing and distracting are the things of the world at times. But Lord, you've called us to steadfastness, to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us as believers to live with anticipation. And as our heads are bowed and we close here today, I do want to give an opportunity for anyone here today that may need to respond to the Lord. You may be here today and you realize that you're not ready. That if the Lord were to come for his people today, you're not confident that you would be in that number. But in your heart, you want to be. You want to respond even now. You want to invite Jesus into your life. As it said, he was cut off but not for himself. He died on that cross for your sin, for mine. Receive that today, the forgiveness, the mercy, the atonement for iniquity, that you might be right before him and ready for him when he comes. I'd love to pray for you if you want to receive Christ today for the first time. Maybe you need to rededicate, to recommit your life to Christ. Maybe you have been led astray by the error of the wicked. Maybe you aren't living steadfastly as you know in your heart you should. But today, the Lord is speaking to you and you're saying in your own heart, Jesus, I want to come back to you. I want to come and live in a way that is ready for your return. I want to recommit, rededicate my heart to you today. If that's your heart, I'd like to pray for you as well. So if you're here today, you want to receive Christ for the very first time, or you want to recommit your life to him, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand where you're seated. Let me see you and I'll pray for you. I bless you, sir, right there in the middle. 
over here on my right. I bless you there in the back. Hand here in the back as well. Anyone else? The Lord's speaking to you. We're just going to close in prayer. It's between you and the Lord, but it's a step of faith. It's a, it's a cry from a sincere heart. Jesus, come into my life. Jesus, I want to give my life to you. I want to give my life back to you. Anyone else? If you have responded, I want to pray. Anyone else before I pray? Just before I pray, anyone else? And so, Lord, for these hearts that have responded to you today, God, I just ask that you would meet them with your love and with your grace. It's amazing to see, Lord, that even in what you describe as the the greatest of all tribulation, you give instruction for salvation. You give hope for rescue, for help. And so today, these hearts, Lord, that you're speaking to, that they would simply come and say honestly before you, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. I believe that you died on that cross, not for yourself, but for me. And I receive it today by faith. Come into my life. Come into my heart. Help me to live in relationship with you and by your spirit. Help me to live a life that is ready for you. Because I want to be with you forever and I want to be ready for you when you come. I ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 